welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Well, it's good to see you in church this evening. Hope you're excited to be here. If you're here for the first time, I hope already that you've uh, been pleasantly surprised at what's going on here. And hopefully uh, you won't be feeling any worse by the time I finish tonight. But uh, before I start sharing, I would like to just pray. So if you could just bear with me, that'd be great. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would help me this evening as I share. Help me to uh, share as much as I need to, no more, no less. I pray that you just help us all to have ears that would hear what you're saying to us. I thank you, Lord, for many people here tonight from many diverse backgrounds, many different situations and circumstances. But Lord, you are relevant to all. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would highlight where and how you're relevant in each and every life here tonight. For your name's sake, I pray. Amen. Excellent. Well, as Tone's already mentioned, we're in the midst of finishing a series called War of the World Views. And so over the last four weeks or so, we've been looking at, started off by looking at what is a worldview, mentioned the fact that everyone's got one, most people haven't really processed it, but everyone believes something about something, everyone believes stuff about life, about how we got here, about who we are, about what's right and what's wrong, about what gives life meaning, and all that sort of stuff, and where we're ultimately going to end up. And so most people have opinions about that, and some people have quite strong opinions about that. The problem is that many people haven't actually processed their opinions. They haven't actually come to a conclusion based on looking into stuff. They've just kind of absorbed it through the culture of the day. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Because when it comes to a worldview, your worldview ultimately is to be grounded in truth and not preference. And what I've discovered, and probably you've discovered, is that many people don't live their life according to the truth or what is right, but according to what they prefer. Now, preference is cool when it comes to ice cream or chocolate or any sort of food for that matter. But when it comes to medicine, you need what works. And I think it's the same when it comes to life and the questions, the bigger questions of life. We don't just want, to, we don't just want what makes us feel good in the short term. Ultimately, we need to know what is true. Because if there's stuff we need to do or stuff we need to not do, we need to know about that. If we, if we need to prepare ourselves in any way, shape or form for what's to come, we need to know about that. And so it doesn't matter um, if, if life feels good, if ultimately it all becomes a waste of time because we missed the point. We looked at that last week. We spoke about meaning last week. And we said that ultimately, um, if we go back to the start, let's go back to the very start. We looked at origins initially. Okay? And we basically said, you've got two options. You've either got God or not God. They're the two options. Either we are here by totally naturalistic processes or we're not. We're here by supernatural processes. And again, I defy any scientist on the face of the planet to be able to not just, um, not just come up with a good argument, but to prove that we are here by naturalistic process. You will not, just, you will not be able to substantiate that claim. You absolutely point blank will not be able to, you cannot sustain it, uh, substantiate it philosophically. You need a cause. We live by cause and effect. You need a first cause. If this world is just purely natural, there is no first cause, naturally speaking, and yet the universe has a beginning. It makes therefore sense to say, well, there is a first cause, but that first cause cannot be natural, it therefore must be supernatural. And so just logically speaking, that makes sense. If you look at science, you look at the laws of science, 
Again, what do we see around about us? We see a world and a universe that is decaying, not one that is uh, growing. Not, well, it's growing, but it's decaying at the same time. Second law of thermodynamics, energy is becoming less and less usable as time goes by. Again, if we look genetically at, at humanity, um, it, it's like there was a whole bunch of information encoded in our DNA That DNA is mutating, it's getting worse, it's breaking down over time. That's why we have so many problems today in terms of our health. And so the evidence, really, if you look at it in an unbiased way, and it's hard because we all have biases, I admit that. We all have a bias, one way or another. As a Christian, I have a bias. I think where I've probably got it over some non-Christians that I used to believe what you believe. I no longer do, not based on my preference, but based on having looked into it and read some books, done some thinking, and thought, I just cannot embrace the whole theory of evolution anymore with any sense of, of, of reality. A kind of, it's like when Jesus, when he challenges disciples to go and said, where else can we go, Lord? You've got the words of eternal life. There are some things I would rather believe. To be honest, my life would be easier in some ways. I wasn't following God. But at the end of the day, where else can I go? I, he surrounded me with truth and I cannot get escape it. I cannot get over it, under it, around it. There are some things that just are self-evident and are supported increasingly by scientific endeavour. The, the church took a hit in the last hundred years or so as, as man thought he had the, the, the wood on the church and he thought that with all his technology and all his scientific discovery and, and, in, and investigation that he was going to prove that God did not exist. It's kind of gone full circle now. All he is managing to do is prove beyond a shadow of doubt that God does exist. You've got famous atheists, a guy called uh, Stephen, um, Stephen Flew, 50 years, he's been a top atheist. He's written books that you, talk, you study if you're doing philosophy at university. This guy has, has, has been ardent as an atheist. But he had one thing in his favour, and that was that I'm going to go where the evidence leads. This man is now a theist. He believes in God on the basis of where science is heading, on the basis of where philosophy has headed. Okay, so when it comes to origins, you've either got God or not God. The evidence suggests, I would say absolutely uh, corroborates that God exists as opposed to God does not exist. Flowing on from that, we move into the area of identity. Again, if, 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 and again, it's an impossible if, but if we did have a mechanism by which life could spontaneously come to this planet, if you already had somehow got a planet from nothing. <laughs> Seriously, this is a big thing. This is not, this is, this is big. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say it without sounding like I'm mocking in a sense because I, I can't help it. The problem is so big, you can't, you can't hide it behind big words. The, the, the world is doing its best to hide it behind big words and, and lofty ivory towers and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, it still comes down to it, is God or isn't he? And once, you, once you've answered that question and you, you cannot find a mechanism, it says, okay, so God is. Where to from there? What about us as human beings? What are we? At the end of the day, we either were, if God didn't exist, we would just be a product of time and chance and our life, and, and therefore we'd just be a purely natural substance. We'd just be a bunch of chemicals and electrical impulses, but that's it, really. At the end of the day, our identity begins and ends there. Alternatively, the Bible talks about a God who created us with intent. He created us in His image. That gives us a purpose, it gives us a, a value. It tells us that we're not just natural beings, but we are, yes, we're natural, but there's also a supernatural element to our lives, an eternal component to our lives, which we'll get on and have a look at in a little bit longer, a little bit later on. 
And it talks about the fact that we have responsibility. We are not just, um, deter- we are not, our choices are not just determined by our genetic makeup, but we actually have real choice. God holds us responsible. And that moves us into the next area of morality. Either there is or there is not such a thing as right and wrong. Absolutes either do exist or they don't. You can't have it both ways. It's either God doesn't exist and therefore we live by our preferences. We live by what the majority of people say is right at any given moment in history. And sometimes, or sorry, not even the majority, but the most influential. Because sometimes minorities can control large majorities and impose their will. And for that moment in time, that becomes right. Until they get overthrown, then something else becomes right. Okay, so it's either about preference and those who have the, the might that are in the right. Or else, maybe there's a little thing called absolutes. Maybe there is a moral standard in our universe. Maybe there are things that really are right or wrong that one day we'll be held accountable for. It's a slippery slide when we start to talk about things which intuitively we know are right and we start to put the, the, uh, we try to minimize that and say these things are just relative. And we start talking about issues through perhaps with sexuality or violence and all that sort of, and we try to dismiss those things as just being relative. Or we try to blame them on our, perhaps our genetic makeup or our upbringing and all that sort of stuff. Now, I, don't, I do believe that there are certain things that have an impact on our lives, but it doesn't take away from the fact that God ultimately is going to hold us morally accountable. Okay? So either moral, morality exists or it doesn't. These are the only options we have, ultimately. We cannot have God and not God. Okay, and from there, everything else flows. We looked last week at meaning, the whole issue of meaning. If there is no God, and we are just here for a season until our, until our chemical makeup burns out, and that's it, gone. I don't know about you, but I struggle to find meaning in that. It doesn't matter what I achieve. It doesn't matter what I do. If it ends when, when my, I take my last breath... It doesn't really matter what I've achieved. It doesn't matter how many kids I've had. It, it, it just, for me, that's it. My life is over. That's, I don't find a great deal of satisfaction in that. And I think many people today in our society are struggling with that very same thing. Meaninglessness is the curse of this age. It's the, it's the product of atheism. It's the product of a godless society. And many people are reeling under the weight of the fact that their life doesn't count. Many people are... are turning to drugs, they're turning to alcohol, they're turning to suicide, they're turning to a whole bunch of stuff just to numb the pain of the knowledge that there is nothing that really makes any sense. That all the, whatever, how much I achieve or how much I endure ultimately means nothing if there is not a meaning giver. Again, if there is God, there's the possibility that there's a meaning giver. We haven't even really looked at the Bible yet too much. We're just saying, this is just logic, really. If there's a God, there's a possibility, it's a meaning giver. It would make good sense to assume that if a God would take the time and attention to make us, that he would make us for a purpose. And so God, the meaning giver, ultimately determines what is meaningful. And so again, it behoves us to find out what is meaningful. And because we can pursue a whole lot of stuff in life and we can have a whole bunch of fun doing it. But, you know, as Stephen Covey, I think I mentioned last week, you know, it's no point climbing the ladder to success if you find it's leaning on the wrong wall at the end of the day. We need to get our ladder re- leaning on the right wall. And we spoke about the fact that ultimately life, the purpose of life is about being connected in to God. You can sum up the whole of the, the biblical commandments in this. Love God, love people. And so if we can get that right, 
ultimately our life becomes meaningful. Our life might look very similar to other people that are doing all sorts of things in their life, but if they're not connected, their life is still meaningless in the bigger scheme of things. It has no eternal significance. Whereas if we connect into God and suddenly our life becomes a channel through whom he can move into and touch the lives of others, suddenly our life is, is, is gaining an eternal significance. We can't take anything to heaven with us other than those that we influence for Jesus Christ. Makes sense? Okay, so now we're moving into the last bit. The last, bit, the last area we're looking at is, is ultimately destiny. Where do we head? What happens next? Okay, we've looked at origins, we've looked at identity, we've looked at morality, we've looked at meaning, and it comes down to destiny. What happens next? Because the one thing that everyone agrees on is that we're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're not going to live forever in this form. We're not going to become vampires. We're not going to stay forever young. All this, no. We're all going to die. It's the great leveller. Everyone agrees on that. The question becomes, what happens after you die, if anything? And again, for, from an atheistic perspective, a humanistic perspective, the answer to that question has to be nothing. It has to be, when you're dead, you're dead. When you're dead, you're dead. When your life, when, when all that is in your body burns up and, and you can no longer breathe and your brain stops moving, that's it, gone. You are dead. So is there any evidence that suggests that that is the case? Again, we've talked about the fact that if God created us, that there's something more to us than just our physical body. But again, if we look across the world, we see this whole concept of a near-death experience. That many doctors have have sought to study because they find it so interesting. This whole idea that someone could die. In other words, they are clinically dead. Their brain is no longer operating. Their heart has stopped beating. There's no blood going around. And, and yet somehow there's a consciousness that's taking place. You've all heard the stories about the, the tunnel, the light, or whatever. Some, some are positive, some are very, people come back very excited about what they've encountered, other people come back very frightened at what they've encountered because some are positive, some are negative. People often will, will go above their bodies and they've sort of like got a third person view of themselves and they can see and they can articulate after they've come back what was going on exactly in that operating room. They can sometimes pick up on what was going in other places as well. They, there's, there's, there's like an awareness a consciousness that they've never had before. They feel like they are super keenly aware. Like it's almost like their body was holding them back. They reckon even blind people, or people that are visually, when, they, when, they, when they're in this state, they can see clearly. They can see what's going on around about them. And so it's like their body is almost an encumbrance on that eternal part or that conscious part of them that is descent or ascending from their, from their body, their physical form. Now that stuff is fairly common. You would have all heard about that. You would have all probably seen stories or read stories or seen stuff on TV about that sort of thing happening. And it's across the world. And, and the thing is that it's not culturally biased. It's, it's like the, the, the encounters are similar across the world, regardless of culture. Now again, if when you're dead, you're dead was true, you would expect not one instance of that. 
And yet there are millions upon millions upon millions of recorded instances of those sorts of things happening. Now again, I'm not saying that when you build a theology on those things, because to me, as a Christian, um, you know, some of the stuff that people come back and share, that, that, that flies in the face of my worldview based on the Bible. So I don't need to take on board all that sort of stuff and say, oh, well, it happened while they were dead. It must be true. No, because the Bible, again, come back to the Bible. The Bible talks about the fact there are deceiving spiritual forces out there. But I think the thing we take from it is the fact that something's happening. The fact that something's happening to some people, many people, in fact, after they are clinically dead, suggests that there is more to life or there is more after death. Again, that would not be possible if there was no such thing as life after death. Things not doing what it's supposed to be, but anyway. <laughs> so that's a, a naturalistic worldview. Okay, and that's, that's probably the, in, in our culture, in our society today, the whole when you're dead, you're dead thing is pretty prevalent. There is other stuff out there about reincarnation and all that sort of stuff. We'll get there in a minute. But primarily, many people believe when you're dead, you're dead. Although I challenge that because many people also believe that you know, when, you, if, you know, when you die, you're a good person, you go to heaven. Okay, so there's sorts of different things that people are believing, but we're going to have a look at what the Bible says about those things. And again, my whole premise is, if the Bible is true, it straight away makes everything else untrue. Not at every level, but in terms of these big questions. The question of, does God or not exist? The moment the Bible is true about God, it means all those things that, are not, that have a different view of God, or a different understanding of God, they, they automatically, by default, have to be untrue. You can't have God and... No God at the same time. You can't have one God and many gods at the same time. Okay, you can't have God who's personal and God who's an impersonal force, you know, making up all the universe. You can't have those things at the same time. Okay, so biblical worldview about destiny. Essentially, it is this when we die, it is not the end. When we die, it is not the end. The body dies, the spirit continues to live. We continue to exist as conscious, disembodied spirits. Absent from the body is present with the Lord for the Christian. Okay, but the Bible talks a lot about, about people that, are, that have died and there's a, there's a waiting that goes on. That's the first part. Okay, so there's a conscious existence beyond death. Again, there's evidence that supports that outside of the Bible. Second thing, the Bible talks about a resurrection. A resurrection, not a reincarnation. Okay, the Bible talks about, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, it is given to man once to die and then to face judgment. Once to die and then to face judgment. If the Bible is true, everything else that contradicts the Bible is untrue. It has to be that way. Once to die and then to face judgment. Resurrection. In other words, our body will come back into another form, another body. Now, again, this, this might, if you're here for the first time, you think, Flipping, this, is, this is hard to get. I don't just, this is like blowing my mind right now. But again, if we bring it back to the start, we ha- there was nothing. There wasn't even a universe, there was just nothing. Now, the Bible says, in the beginning, God. Scientifically, we have come to the conclusion that in the beginning, there is a beginning. The universe is not eternal. It is not here by naturalistic process just, just because it is. It had a beginning. 
And so a God that can speak into existence the entire universe, a God that can speak into existence the creatures that, that, that inhabit this planet and the, and the foliage and the plants and everything else, and then ultimately mankind, it's not a big deal for him to recreate or to create some bodies for his people to go into that have been dis- Could you think about it? It's not just about getting their old body back. Some people don't have an old body to go back to. You think about those people that were just vaporized in explosions. You think about those people whose bodies were cremated or what you know, it's 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 God is going to do something totally different. 1 Corinthians 15 just talks about the whole passage talks about that as Jesus was resurrected, so too will be resurrected. And there's, while Jesus had elements, there's a similarity in terms of his physical body that he was identifiable as a human. There were aspects of his body that were superhuman, that were supernatural. We see he appears in a room, comes through a wall, and it appears amongst the disciples that they're locked into a room. And then he's able just to eat a meal with them. And then seemingly leave without leaving a piece of fish on the wall. So there's this supernatural body, there's this concept of a resurrection. Oh, there we go. Excuse me. Modern technology, wonderful. Stupid thing. (laughs) So resurrection of the body for every person. You know, people want the fountain of you. They want eternal life. I can guarantee you now that every person in this room has eternal life. Every one of you will live forever. Every one of you will have a body that will endure forever. Bible teaches that. Talks about two resurrections. There's a resurrection of the righteous. There's a resurrection of those who the Bible talks about as being unrighteous. There's those who know God and have made peace with him. There are those who are in enmity with God and do not have peace with him. So there's these two resurrections that are going to take place. Resurrected to what? The Bible talks about a resurrection to a judgment. Again, that whole morality thing we spoke about, that thing that didn't, you know, it seemed like you do whatever you like. That thing with what are you, you know, you're so outdated, you're so, you're so out of touch. You know, get with the times, all that sort of stuff. Suddenly, when you're standing before God, that stuff is going to snap straight into focus, and your preferences are going to feel very lame. People that have lived their life pursuing what everyone else said they should pursue have just lived their life doing what felt good at the time. This is heartbreaking, really. You think about the things that are justified in our world today. You know, I mentioned different people and some of their struggles and stuff. But, you know, as a society today, we're, we're encouraging people to do their own thing. We're encouraging them to throw off the shackles. We're encouraging them to do whatever feels good. And yet at the same time, we're, in, we're encouraging them to fly in the face of God. Tony, can you just fix that up for us, bud? You're a legend, right?
So there's going to be a judgment that's coming. The Bible talks about a second coming of Jesus. It's going to be part of this whole deal. Again, for any person to stand up and trumpet atheism or to stand up and trumpet Islam or to stand up and trumpet Buddhism or Hinduism or any other ism on the face of the planet, they've got to get past the person of Jesus Christ. They cannot ignore him as a person in history that either is who he said he is and should be listened to, or, or is just a nutcase, really. Jesus, this whole issue of death, this whole issue of destiny, I mean, people want Jesus as a good moral teacher. Now, most people would say, hey, this guy, he knew what he was talking about when it comes to interpersonal relationships and society and how we can all work together. And that they accept that. Most people accept that. And yet they want to ignore him when he spoke so much about what's to come. And he spoke so much about heaven and hell. And he spoke so much about judgment and doing the right thing and all that sort of stuff. And so Jesus, to me, is the expert. He is one person that didn't just die and black out for a few minutes and then come back and said, I had a near-death experience. He is a person who set his life towards, or set his life on a course that would ultimately take him to death. But it didn't take him by surprise. There's several thousand years of biblical history that are, that are leading up to this moment that are preempting what Jesus is going to do. As, to be a sacrifice, to pay for the, the sins of mankind... Again, you're probably not going to quite comprehend all that if you're here for the first time, but the Bible says that we're separated from God. We've, we've missed his mark for our life. And that, that carries is a capital offense. But Jesus stood in the gap on our behalf. And so you've got this man who lived this life, and he lived a good life, and he taught many wonderful things. But at the end of the day, he came not to be a good example, not just to be a prophet, not to be a healer. Or a, he did all those things, but he came to die ultimately. But in the, in the lead up to that, he spoke a lot about what was to come. And he spoke about our need for what he was about to do. And so here's Jesus, even before his death, he's saying, I'm going to die, guys. He's with this bunch of thick heads called the disciples. And, and he keeps he's spelling it out, guys, I'm, I'm not going to be here for much longer. I'm going, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And he's... He's talking about the fact that he's going to be crucified, that he's going to be dead, he's going to be buried, and he will rise again on the third day. This is not a common occurrence. This is a unique occurrence in the history of the world. Have other people died and rose again? Yes, after a short period of time. Some did it under Jesus' ministry. But the difference is that Jesus himself prophesied that he would rise again. He was dead for three days. Tone's going to speak about this next week. I would encourage you to get here next week because I believe this is one of the things that Christianity rises or falls on, the whole resurrection. Okay, I'm not going to go into the, the whys and wherefores of why I believe it to be true other than to say, if Jesus rose from the dead, surely of all the people on the face of the earth who speak about what is yet to come, 
who speak about the possibility of judgment and all this, surely he is one to listen to. Surely if he is right, then it doesn't matter what else anyone else says because he has the runs on the board. There is no life other than Jesus on the face of the, on the planet that can hold a candle to him. The resurrection is God's, uh, God's authorization on Jesus' life. It's the, yes, I totally endorse all that this man has de- done and all that he has said. Therefore, I'm going to raise him up again. It wasn't something that happened uh, in secret. Many religions today that, that, are so, that have, seem to have a lot of influence, their influence is out of all proportion to their credibility when you look at their origins. But Jesus was a man who was, who, you know, Paul was able to say later on when he's being challenged by governors, he's saying, hey, look, you know yourself all about these things. They didn't happen in the corner. Yeah. It, it, what was going on caused the whole of Jerusalem to be astir. People knew what was happening. Jesus appeared to over 500 people after he had risen from the dead. So he's worth listening to. The Bible says, as he is, we're going to become like him. The Bible talks about the fact that judgment is going to be based on what we did in this life. You know, the default position for every person on the planet is guilty. Guilty. We are born on the wrong side of the fence. Every one of us. We're all in the same boat. Seems unfair when you first look at it. Think, man, what sort of God would kind of tar us all with the same brush? But the Bible says that God did that so that he can actually have mercy on us all and make Jesus' sacrifice relevant for us all. Because if he, if he didn't do it that way, we'd be left to our own devices. It would be, it would be just who was born into a good family or who, who by virtue of their genetic makeup was, was skillful or whatever other criteria he should use. But God just contemns us all. And this is all you've got to do. All you've got to do to restore the relationship with me is to accept that Jesus died on your behalf. And if in the period of time that you have on this life, you'll make that decision, you can be with me forever. That's, that's the essence of Christianity. That's what's really what it's about. That's why when we worship, we get a little bit excited. That's all it is. So judgment follows resurrection. And then the Bible talks about this whole concept of heaven and hell. Heaven, simply put, I mean, there's a whole bunch of technical doctrinal theological stuff that sort of hang around this whole concept of heaven. But essentially heaven is like living with God. Heaven is just being where God is. The Bible talks about the fact that God is going to recreate this planet. This planet is, is, is breaking down. It's in bondage to decay. It's, it's blood stained. It's seen a whole bunch of nonsense. And God's going to recreate or create a new heaven and a new earth, the Bible says. And God's going to live there. You know, heaven is very earthly in a sense. It's very material. It's very natural, very physical. Again, the whole concept of, of sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, we've got to get rid of that. What we're experiencing now is very much a foretaste of what we're going to experience into it without all the nonsense, without all the sickness, without all the pain, without all the backstabbing, all the gossip, all the misunderstanding, all that sort of stuff, without the wars, without the drugs, without all the, all the other stuff that comes from people rebelling against God. So that's heaven. 
Hell, on the other hand, is where God's not. Hell is what God does with people who don't want to yield to him. It's interesting, again, it seems so unfair for many people to think, why? I don't get hell. It's like, why would God punish someone forever? When all they did was this or all they did was that. And they fail to understand the reason God does it. There's a couple of reasons why God just doesn't obliterate people. One is just the fact that he dignifies them. We are the highest order of creation outside of himself. We're created in his image. He will not just obliterate us. He will not treat us like cattle. And he will also honour our free will. Why doesn't God make everyone go to heaven? Because he will honour our free will. I always get nervous as a pastor when I hear people say, I'm going to move in with so-and-so, what do you reckon? And often I reckon, don't do it. Because most people can't live together. And it might start off all right, but it gets very ugly very quickly. Would a heaven where everyone was welcome really be a heaven at all? A heaven where everyone is welcome. Would it be heaven at all? It wouldn't be. For there to be such a thing as heaven, there needs to be such a thing as hell. There needs to be a separation. It doesn't necessarily need demons and pitchforks and literal fire and flame and all that sort of stuff. But what it does need is a separation. It needs God to be able to say, okay, if that's the way you want it, that's the way it'll be. I can work with these guys. These guys who, through the process of life on earth, learnt humility, learnt appreciation. I can work with that. Through all eternity, I can work with that. I can get these guys to live together and to have peace and harmony and joy and all that sort of stuff. But for those that just refuse to appreciate me, for those that refuse to acknowledge me, I can't do anything with that. I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to remove them from my presence. And I'm going to leave them to their own devices. They want to be the center of the universe. So be it. D.A. Carson says this, Hell is not a place where people are consigned because they're pretty good blokes but just didn't believe the right stuff. They're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and want to be at the centre of the universe. Hell is, not full of, sorry, hell is not filled with people who have already repented. Only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the centre of the universe and who persist in their God-defying rebellion. C.S. Lewis says it's possible that people continue to blaspheme and continue to heap up their sins as, as, as their attitude throughout hell is unchanged, throughout eternity is unchanged. You take away the, the influence of God. We live in a world that is just the sunshine of heaven is upon us. And there's, such a, there's so much of a restraining influence just because of God's presence in the world and in his image. But Leave people, take God out of that. Take all the goodness out of it. And suddenly hell begins to look very bleak. But it's not about God just wanting to, and wanting to ruin people's attorney. It's just like, you've got the option, folks. Every one of us had the option. Yeah. Jesus said, 
Wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to destruction. But narrow is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. This whole series about worldview, it's really about just trying to put it out there. There's a massively wide road out there. And there's a narrow road. The wide road, many people are saying all roads lead to God. Doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter how you believe it, doesn't matter what you, how you live your life, etc. Et That's the wide road. That's the easy road. That's the preference road. That's the politically correct road. But then there's the biblical road. And again, I'm not saying believe it because I said. I'm not saying if you come to this church, you'll do what we say. I'm saying, hey, read it for yourself. Go to the library, get some books, jump on the internet. The, the, the questions that I've asked, the, the things I've put out there, do your own research. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself. You're standing at a crossroad right now. For those that don't know God, you're standing at a crossroad. It's like a, a broad road. And you can see people, and it's just like all you, all you, many of your friends and family are probably streaming down that road. And it's the road that's well lit. It's the road that's got the music. It sounds great down there. But if you look carefully, and we've looked carefully over the last few weeks, you can see just on the side of the road, there's just carnage after carnage. There's car wreck after car wreck after car wreck of people's lives. We talked about our world. We talked about our society having thrown away what was essentially a biblical worldview, a, 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 a biblical um, culture. And we've embraced a prevailing worldview that is anti-God and that is relativistic and so, much, so many other things. And you've got to ask yourself, are, are people better or worse off than they were when people had Bibles in their homes, Bibles in schools, they prayed together as families, they'd respond to one another on the basis of what they said rather than on the basis of how they felt. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, do the mass. Just do it yourself. It's, truth is self-evident. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, I think it is, says that people suppress the truth. It's not like they don't know the truth. And, and you know, again, in our thinking, it's sometimes like, well, it's not fair that, you know, that person died young or if that person had just lived a bit longer, they might have been able to come to know. God knows ultimately what's in our heart. I believe he gives every one of us as much time as we need to make a decision to follow him. But the Bible says that people by their wickedness suppress the truth. We know. God would not, it would not be fair for God to hold us accountable if his existence was not self-evident, if his ways were not self-evident, if his truth were not self-evident. But it is. And then we have on top of that we have his revealed word that fills in the gaps, joins the dots for us and helps us to know who this God is. The God who, if we look at the world around us, we can say, there's a, it seems like there's a God and it seems like he's powerful and it seems like he's intentional and it seems like he's incredibly clever and it seems like he's personal, it seems like he's moral. And then we can go to his word and we can find out exactly who he is. 
And the Bible reveals this God to be Jesus himself. And so please, 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 you owe it to yourselves. Again, if, if you're a Christian, you owe it to yourselves as well. You owe it to your friends to have answers. You have, owe it to your friends not to roll over and, and die or say it's all too hard. When they ask you some tough questions, I hope they do ask you tough questions. I hope they get you squirming. And I hope you're able to answer the questions. But for those of you who don't know God at this particular point in time, make sure you do the hard yards. It's not ultimately a hard thing to become a Christian, but it's a hard thing in the climate in which we live to stand up. When everyone else is saying, do this, do that, and what are you doing that for? And that's, you know, don't throw your brain away and you know, all that sort of stuff. But stand up and be counted. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless.